You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. We sit down with John Steinberg, who has been an active venture capitalist for over 30 years and as a general partner of three funds managed over $250 million. As an angel investor, John has made over 250 investments. On today's show, we talk about what is the search fund model, understanding what search funds are, historical context, and the business landscape, a discussion of potential risk and challenges associated with the search fund, insights on how search funds are evolving, insights on how search funds approach due diligence and factors considered in evaluation of potential acquisitions, how they get access to great deals, and much more. Let's begin this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. John, welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast. I'm very excited for this week's episode. And I, and I want to thank Nick, who made the introduction, who connected us. We had met a long time ago in Silicon Valley, but he reintroduced us. With that, John, for our audience out there, your background's amazing, but can you give a little bit of information on your background for our audience? Absolutely. And thanks for having me, Sean. This is great to be here today. I get to talk about one of my favorite subjects today. And I was going through a little bit of my history just because it reminds me of what a lucky person I am and what an incredible journey and how excited I am for the future. So thanks for taking the time to do this. I actually always start the story with growing up in Nebraska. I feel that it honestly grounded me and is a big part of who I am today. Grew up as middle class as middle classes can get. Grew up in a neighborhood where the kids were told to go out to play and come home for dinner. Doors weren't locked. Keys were left in the car. Got a Mayberry RFD. But but I remember having my first job. My dad was a, a real estate developer in Nebraska. And my first job at eight years old was picking weeds on those very hot Nebraska summer days and just learning that, yeah, sometimes you had to buck it up and do the hard things, even if you didn't like it. And I don't think I got paid much for doing that. If anything, it was just expected. It was ridiculously cold and snowy, we would be plowing the driveways and shoveling the driveways. And so that was just expected. And we would also, we lived about a mile from school and we would walk to school. And that was, again, just so different than what it feels like today. And being in Nebraska, it also meant that the kids in the neighborhood, we played together a lot, built relationships and still have those relationships to today. In fact, get together with the folks almost annually and they're really important to me in my life. But I did get the, the good fortune of going out west for school, went to Stanford, and that also had a profound impact on me. And Stanford wasn't Stanford back then. Nobody knew that it was this incredible school. I suppose some people did, but the pressure of getting into college wasn't the same. And I just did it because it seemed like an exotic place to go and far away from Nebraska. And I, I've always been a traveler, wanted to see what that was like. But it introduced me to, in a word I didn't even know at the time, entrepreneurship. It introduced me to independent thinking. It introduced me to people thinking outside the box. I remember thinking uh, at Stanford, they said, you can create your own major if you want. And what that meant. And so even though Silicon Valley at the time was very nascent, this was back 1978, it's still California, Northern California in particular, really had that 
mentality of go out and create your future. And so I think that had a profound impact on me. And then I was also very lucky. I had parents that were super supportive of me trying different things. And I remember my mother putting me on a train uh, with one other friend when I was 12 years old to go from Omaha to New York, two 12-year-olds. Can you imagine that happening today? Probably would not happen. When I was 16, I was sent to Israel to work on a kibbutz laying irrigation pipe. Or in my senior year of high school, instead of being in school the last semester, I was lucky enough to go work in Washington, D.C. for a senator. And these are all experiences that were just not on what everybody else did's path. And it opened up my eyes to what is possible and to say, okay, you don't have to follow a traditional path necessarily. And getting to Stanford was just a continuation of that, if you will. And I'm the type of person who would sign up for everything and say, gosh, I don't know anything about, let's say, Ujamaa, where I live, the Black theme house. I'm going to just learn about that. Or I'm going to sign up and be an editor on the paper or try and be a disc jockey at the radio station or and so on. At one point, I even ran, ran for class president, not expecting to win, but just to see what that experience was like and put myself out there. And shockingly, we made it actually to the runoff. So we lost by a few votes in the end, but an incredible experience learning what it was like to be uncomfortable and to try new things. And that's really been a big part of who I am and my journey, including after Stanford, I decided to go try and do some volunteer work and live in Asia, where I lived for three years. And then after that, I came back and said, I've never lived in the American South. I think I'll go live in Dallas and do some real estate. And after that, I came back to Stanford for business school and said, I'd never lived in New York City and I'd never done investment banking. So I'm going to go work at Lehman Brothers for the summer. And so you're getting a theme here. I, I'm not afraid to go out and try new things. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to you that after some three decades of doing venture capital, and I would change my career and try something brand new. And that sort of brings us up today. I can fill in more blanks, but I am starting to really go deep on an asset class that has me more excited probably than anything I've ever worked on in my life. And I've worked on a lot of amazing things. And that's called search funds. And I'm happy to explain because I've been doing that for the last six months explaining to people what search funds are. And I feel like a, a bit of an evangelist, but if you want, I'll go deeper on that. Yeah, yeah. We've had a lot of venture capitalists on the show in the past. We've had investment bankers. We've had a lot of what you've mentioned, even though your past, I love the stories of being on a train at age 12. It, it almost makes me jealous thinking, man, it must have been so amazing growing up in that time to today. You're doing something that you said is more exciting than anything you've done in the past. And I think everyone else for your interest pretty much says that you're, you're the most interesting man in the world with, with what you've done. But what is a search fund? Can you give a little history of it and a little overview for our audience who might have never even heard of this? Yeah, of course. I'd love it. So search funds get their name because it's really essentially a traditional search fund, which was invented in 1984 from Stanford and Harvard business schools, gets his name when a graduate of a top business school, it used to only be Stanford and Harvard, now it's much broader. It's actually the asset class is blowing up in a good way right now. But it, it's when an MBA student graduates and instead of taking a typical job, 
a McKinsey consulting job or a JP Morgan banking job or working at a tech company. Instead of going and doing that, they say, I'm going to raise a small pool of cash to pay myself a smaller wage than I would get if I was going to do that more traditional job to search for, hence the name, and acquire and run a small business. And in some ways, it's the ultimate entrepreneurial journey. I know we're used to hearing about venture capital and that being super entrepreneurial. But when you take a small American business, and we're talking about a very broad set of business, it could be skincare clinics or airplane parts or furniture company or gutter repair, porta potties. or And so we're talking about the millions of businesses in America that make America what it is. These MBA students search for, and it's, by the way, the search part I can talk a lot about is brutal. It's hard. You're on the phone. Would you like to sell your business? Would you like to sell your business? Hundreds of calls a day. But when you finally find the right business and acquire it, then you have a completely different skill set than because you have to run the company. So first you're in acquisition mode, and then you're in run the company mode. And generally speaking, the MBA students are 32, 34 years old, and they haven't necessarily run something before. They're generally wickedly smart, crazy hungry. And think about it. They've been working for a year and a half to find this company. So they are ready, right? They couldn't be hungrier to go run something. And then on top of that, you have this incredible mentoring and coaching group called investors around the table. And it's quite different than, say, venture. And I can get into that. But anyway, so then you have this group mentoring you as you transition from the previous owner to run the company. And honestly, it's hard to get your hands around. At one level, okay, a younger person goes, acquires a small business, runs it, and sells it to at a higher price, hopefully, to private equity. Okay, that's like the headline, but it's so much more than that. And I guess I should stop and just say, I don't know a better returning asset class in the last 40 years. The average return, if you look, and I would encourage all your listeners to look at two things, the Stanford Primer on search funds, which is about a 10 or 15 minute read, and then the Stanford results on search funds. Every two years, Stanford updates the numbers of all the searches done. And the average internal rate of return, IRR, for search funds is over 35% net annually for 40 years. And the return on investment is something like five to seven times. So that's pretty amazing if you think about other asset classes for the last 40 years. Stock market's probably somewhere around 8% over that time. PE, normal, what we consider PE, whether it's venture or other kinds of private equity, depending on how you slice and dice, it's going to be around 13, 14%. So this isn't a little bit better. This is astonishingly better. And what people often forget about annual returns in Warren Buffett, a hero from Omaha, often reminds us is that there is a magic around compounded return. If you have a 10% annual return versus a 20% and you go out 20, 30 years, the resulting number is astonishingly different. 
the 20% isn't twice as good in 20 years, right? It's exponentially better. So the returns generated by this asset class over that amount of time have made a lot of people a lot of money. And it's resulted in people just now, after 40 years, starting to hear about it. And that's because it's a very small asset class, right? In the history of search, maybe $3 billion total over the 40-some years has been invested. But if you take a look at uh, the last couple years, say in 2020 to 23, probably a quarter of it has been invested. And my point is, it went like this, and now it's going like this. And why is that? Because now the business schools, the best business schools are teaching search, teaching this playbook, teach getting students the information if they want to go down this path. 11 years ago, two schools taught it. Today, over 20 top business schools teach it. It is now, used to be just in the United States. It's now on six continents. I just spoke to someone this morning who's looking to do it in China. It's happening in Europe. It's happening in Latin America. It's happening all over the world. It's so it's so exciting. Because if you think about it, what's happening, the baby boomers all over the world are having to exit, having to retire, having to get some kind of transition for their businesses. And now our generation, the next generation, they don't want to run their family businesses. We've all seen the show Succession. We know what happens. So these people are saying, gosh, I have this really nice business, been great for our family, been great for my lifestyle. What do I do? Because it's it's a two to five million dollar EBITDA business, but there's not a, a rich market, if you will, for those businesses. It's a lot of disinformation, it's inefficient. And so along comes this concept of search. And there are people out there saying, calling these people up and getting to know them and saying, I'm your answer. I'm your exit. I'm your legacy. And so it does, it's hard. And when you're buying that size of business, you're often buying things that, let's just say, aren't always as they seem. So you bought the company and say, wait, you didn't tell me this. You didn't tell me that. Or you represented this. But because search has been around for so long, people have much better pattern recognition. They know how to go and do the due diligence on the acquisition. And so the search class, actually, I gave you the great return numbers earlier. The returns are going up, not going down. You would think, gosh, people are hearing about it, but they're going up. And I think in part because the baby boomers are having a sell, in part because the investors in the asset class are getting smarter about what to buy and what to look for. And also because I think the playbook of search, acquisition, running, it gets better and better as people do it more and more. Let's go back and let's talk about some of the potential risk and challenges. Sure. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of risk. Let me be clear. You're buying a company that generally has, it does have positive EBITDA. It try, you try and buy something that has at least three years of positive EBITDA. And so the entrepreneur, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's two. Sometimes there's a team of searchers come in and really only once they've acquired the company, do they really find out? Do they really, they could be the employees who were key all of a sudden decide to leave because there's a transition. It could be that there's, you try and figure this out up front, but maybe there's customer concentration risk that you didn't know. Maybe there's a lawsuit you didn't realize. Maybe sales numbers weren't exactly what they were told. There's a ton of risk in these small companies. And we do things to mitigate the risk. We do a quality of earnings. We do our due diligence. We talk to customers, et cetera, et cetera. That's all in the playbook, but it's risky, right? And so that's number one. Number two, for the search, 25 plus percent of people who decide to go down this path never acquire a company. 
imagine you're taking less money because you're not going on that traditional job route, taking less money to spend up to two years trying to find something to buy. And by the way, most searchers geographically say, I'll be anywhere. I just want to find this company to run it. Topeka, the Pensacola, right? They don't know where they're going to be. They're out looking around the country. But imagine you spent the two years, you're traveling to trade shows, you're getting to know some industries, you're basically doing this on your own, dialing for dollars, and you find some things, they don't work out. The risk often you don't get the first one. There's deals that blow up or your investors say, that's good, but we're not investing in that. So imagine you went through this whole path and at the end, you've got nothing to show for. So that's a huge risk. So that's not for the faint of heart. And then, of course, I, I just talked about the risk of you buy it and it's not what it seems. But the good news, and I compare it to venture, is you're buying a stated profitable company. So you've got something to work with if you do get the acquisition done. And it is what you thought it was. It's an incredible opportunity then to take it from here and go to here. And the beautiful thing about search from an investment standpoint is on in generally, you're buying this two to $5 million EBITDA company for an average of about 4x multiple. So four times EBITDA, that's your purchase price. And then you're growing it to sell it to private equity, which generally likes something two or three times that size. And they're willing, because you grow it, they're willing to pay seven to 10x EBITDA multiple. So there's a little magic in this multiple expansion. You get the organic growth, you get the multiple expansion, you put a little bit of conservative debt on it. So that can help juice returns. And voila, you get a great outcome that I've already talked about. And so there's lots of risk. It's really hard. But I, so let me talk about search fund conferences. I just went to the Stanford Search Fund Conference. And why am I transitioning to that? It's because I go to these and the power and energy of enthusiasm for people who are going into this or who have done it successfully, or even those who have done it, and maybe the outcome wasn't great, the excitement that these people have for what they've done and are doing is unlike anything I've ever seen. It reminds me so much of venture capital 30 years ago, when people thought they were starting companies and changing the world. I don't feel like that's the case today with venture. We can talk about that. It still exists, but it's been diluted in search. People are enthusiastic and the numbers show it. Again, five years ago, you had two search fund conferences. You had Stanford and Harvard, and then internationally, you had Barcelona. Okay. Today, this fall, I've already been to the Stanford conference, sold out, waiting list, 600 people. Harvard just announced their put tickets and they're almost all sold out. Duke, again, this last couple of weeks, a couple of years ago, two years ago, had 150 people attend. They had 550 this year and on. So this is a movement. This is a real thing. This is, you're going to hear a lot more about search. And it reminds me of when I started doing venture. I remember having to explain to everyone what venture capital was. Can you imagine today if you said venture capital and someone said, what's venture capital? You'd look at them like, what? Where are you from? Where have you been? And search is that way. And that's, you can tell, I really feel like I'm at the beginning of something that is going to be really big and really interesting and has been, but it's been an insider's game for decades. And now we're making it available for people outside who are learning about it and who want to invest in the asset class, who want to be involved in the asset class. 
And the cool thing about search, by the way, let me broaden the conversation, is it's not, I'm focused on traditional search funds, the Stanford, Harvard, et cetera, business school graduates. But search is, is bigger than that. There are people who are now in mid-career who maybe have been in the workforce 15 years who say, okay, I did the corporate thing. Actually, I think I'm going to go do a search fund at 45. And I'm going to I'm gonna go spend time and look for a company to acquire and run. Now there are incubators. Now there are accelerators. They're all the things you would expect to happen in a maturing asset that I've seen before, by the way, in venture. In venture, at the beginning, was Sand Hill Road. There was a bunch of insiders. People passed the hat, shared deals. As the asset class grew, different models came to fruition. Different geographies came to be. And while I don't think search ever scales like venture, for a bunch of reasons, is about, as and the statistics show it, it's about to get much bigger, still small relative to the opportunity set, but it is about to get much bigger. And you're going to see the maturation with new models and new geography. Can you talk about why you don't think it will scale? Also, why do you think there's so much more excitement moving in that direction than, than the VC? And, and do you think VC is being disrupted right now? Yeah, there were several questions there. I don't think it ever scales. I think that was your first question. I don't think it ever scales because the people involved in traditional search funds roll up their sleeves and get really into the weeds. And part of the success of search funds, the reason the returns have been so outstanding is you have a set of investors who truly add value, who are working with the searcher starting at the class and teaching it. And then once a searcher says, I want to raise a search fund, the people that have taught the class sometimes invest. And instead of like venture, I'll do some contrasting. Venture, you often get a lead investor and then a few smaller investors. Search, you have a group of 10, 12, 14 investors around the table who all are adding value, who are all close to the searcher and who are helping. They're almost like a YPO or Vistage group, mentoring, coaching the searcher along the path. That is so powerful. We know that's powerful. It's worked for hundreds of years to have accountability and a personal board of advisors, if you will. And so you can't scale that kind of relationship because there are only so many hours in the day, right? And so that's part of the reason it doesn't scale. Also, the reason it doesn't scale is because if you think about it, search, it takes a while to find the company. With venture, I can't tell you how many times I've done hundreds of venture deals. Someone comes in, they've got an idea on the back of an envelope, and they say to me, hey, this is a hot idea. This is a hot deal. This is the valuation. This, If you don't do it, these 10 other people will. you got to decide this week. Boom. And I'm off. I'm going to get in my garage and, and build a company because it's software and it can scale quickly and I can build the team and I don't need that much to do that. That is just the opposite of what happens in search is bricks and mortar, brick, picks and shovels, and it's getting in the trenches and it can be messy and, and there's people involved and customers and it's not starting from scratch. And it's not, and while software is starting to become a bigger component of some of the companies acquired, it's still a lot of of traditional companies, small businesses that we know about. So it's very different from who's involved, the number of people involved, the types of businesses, the types of issues they're facing as an ongoing concern. But I do think it will continue to grow because of the reasons I've talked to you about. 
The awareness of it is changing. Before, you couldn't even find banks that would loan to this asset class. Now there's infrastructure for that. Before, you couldn't find very many sources of investor dollars. Now there's more. So it is changing. But again, venture is so different on how it scales. And in venture, you go out and you try an idea. If it works, you know fairly quickly if it's going to work, right? And then you can add to that, throw fuel on that, or say, eh, didn't work. Let's go to the next idea. That's just not the way search works. And so that's part of it. What were your other questions? Sorry, I was asking about the scaling question. Oh, do you think... Venture capital is going to be disrupted. I think it's different. Now, I venture, look, I, I am a huge fan of technology. I still believe that technology has a long way to go. If you think about technology, when I started, it was a one by one kind of rollout of different technologies. And what's happened in technology is now we have a tidal wave. We have 25 different cool new technologies. Before it was something like, it was networking was going to change the world. Then let's go back to the PC was going to change the world. And then there was networking. And then there were, then there was the web. And then it was a serial set of new. Now we have everything from real estate tech to health tech to AI to clean tech to name it. And it's all being disrupted, right? We're at that moment. And so innovation's happening on almost every front you can imagine. And dollars are going after that. So it's not going to be disrupted. But I think what's happened back to your question is, why is search getting the emphasis and interest is because I think we have a different generation thinking about risk reward. We have a different generation who's maybe not as happy. We had a bunch of people who said, hey, I'm going to go to this startup and I'm going to get a bunch of stock and the company is going to go public and boom, I'm going to be rich. That was a moment. And it turns out it didn't happen with every company. And it turns out we're in a market where there aren't a lot of IPOs. And it turns out that more and more companies, not everybody can IPO, and this is harder. And so what was perceived as, I'll call, call easy money, and, and it, it, it isn't easy, and maybe it's not as satisfying as people thought. It takes a very special person to do search, and they end up self-identifying as a person who wants to run. And sometimes it's someone whose parents had a small business, or maybe they're immigrants, and they understand that to make it in the United States, it's going to take this hard work. Or maybe it's someone from a military background. There is a variety of backgrounds, but there's generally something there that says, I want to own something. I want to manage people. I want to work really hard, and I want to build up. And so I think you're seeing people recognize the reward for doing that. And before, if you didn't know about search or the opportunity to own something, then how could you do it? You couldn't because you didn't know about it. I remember back years ago when people were like, buy real estate, no money down. And some of that was craziness, right? But it made people start thinking, maybe I could own a second home or a third home and I could be a landlord and I could rent. The same thing is happening in search. The awareness is growing. We're doing this podcast more. I guarantee people will go out and they'll look at the Stanford study and say, I know someone who did something like that. Maybe I could do that. So that's what's going to happen in the next 10 years for sure. So let's talk about that. How do these searchers, how do they find, identify, and evaluate potential target companies for the acquisition? It's it's what you would imagine, Sean, but it's not sexy. It's not glamorous work. So a searcher comes out of, say, Stanford or MIT, whatever good business school, and they say, okay, I'm going to go raise from 12 different people a small amount of money. I'm going to have my investors around the table. But to do that, I have to tell them and convince them 
my story and why I'm going to be successful, why they should invest in me. The very first thing you do as a searcher is you have to sell yourself, right? And you're selling the idea that you will be able to work mostly by yourself in a room, hitting companies over and over to say, would you sell your company? But you can't do it. You have to be thoughtful about it, right? You can't just shotgun it. Generally speaking, you're going to say, here's three to five industries I'm interested in, or have some background in or where I think there's real opportunity. And you explain why they're good industries. And you maybe say, because they're growing and they're fragmented. So there's opportunity to do roll-ups or you've got some background in it or whatever the case is, right? And then maybe what you start doing is, let's say you've raised the money and you've picked three industries. Well, what you start doing is you start to go to the industry trade shows. You start to get to know the players in it. You you actually interview people in the industry and make sure you're understanding it. You're building a knowledge base about various industries. And you're also going out and understanding the landscape. But in the meantime, you got to get going. So you are literally part of the playbook is how do you build your CRM? How do you find a database? How do you actually get to those companies? How do you get the emails? How do you... So you're building up a methodology for not only how to find things, how to sell yourself, but ultimately... What happens is, let's say you find a target acquisition. Why does that person want to sell to you? And and they're getting hit up all the time. And you have to be able to convince them that their legacy will be preserved, right? That Okay. And that their employees will be well taken care of. Generally speaking, people selling their companies have been doing this for decades. It's probably the mo- one of the most important things in their life. They don't want it to just go away. Of course, they want to pay off too. So you're learning those skills. And there's a playbook around that. And it's, yeah, I had someone say to me, this was a person who never acquired. They spent the two years, they worked really hard and never acquired. And they said, you know what? Even though I didn't end up a company, it was like getting a PhD in business. I'd had my MBA and it was brutal that I never got anything, but I don't regret it for a second. So it's that type of person who takes that mindset in. And that person, by the way, ended up finding something ultimately to acquire and went back to people and they backed back that person. So it's not a dead end at all because you're getting skills while you're doing this and you're learning about industries. So that's part of the color around what that process looks like. Speaking of the process, how about the due diligence? I mean, what types of factors come into it? How are they evaluated? in the deal with their potential investors. Sure. You're an investment banker. You know a little bit about this. The due diligence is extremely important. And there's almost as much value in not buying the wrong company right as buying the right company. And so due diligence is the ability to see behind the words, kind of understand. You're going to ask, everybody has a set of questions from your financials, from your key employees, from the legal side. And you go through that's extremely important. But you also have to be able to to see around the corners to see what they're not saying, to see what has not been said and not been told, not been disclosed. And the due diligence process is hard. It's real. It's time consuming. You You have to spend money on it because you're getting outside experts involved. I'm sure on your show, you've talked about this. It's no different for these companies as it is for big companies in the sense of the process of going through it, it's sometimes harder because the information, it's not like you're working with a public company. So some of the information is not as forthcoming, but it's in tremendously time intensive, important part of the process. And because you have these investors around the table that have been involved with this so many times, hundreds and hundreds of times, I think generally speaking, 
It's one of the reasons traditional search works. And so there are these folks out there, as I mentioned, who do what's called an independent search. They go and find something and then get the investors. That's an interesting approach. It's not what I'm focused on because I love, first of all, I love the mentoring and coaching I talked about, but I also love the practice of having these really smart investors helping you as you think about the acquisition as well. So it's a tremendously important critical part of success for a searcher to understand how to go through due diligence. And by the way, it's often the case you don't get the first company that you put a letter of intent on, right? You think you're going down the path and due diligence will show you that, no, this doesn't make sense. Or you find things that were unexpected that make the deal not the deal you thought it was. So that's what happens in due diligence. What happens when there's, say, there's many different groups compete in, some in the LOI, you have family offices, you have smaller PE groups, and then you have the search fund. How does that searcher beat out the others? So it's a great question. And what, again, part of the reason search is so successful is that generally speaking, and not always, searchers, while they might talk to brokers, often don't use brokers. And the reason for that is brokers have an agenda. One of the beautiful things about search is the alignment of interests from the searcher to the investors to the seller. There is such a strong alignment. I don't find that in all asset classes. In fact, I find it in very few. So a broker is probably not an alignment of interest, right? The broker has, they make their money when something gets sold. So they're going to really be pushing. They're not always going to tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? But a lot of searchers end up buying things without a broker a lot, okay? A lot because we're playing at a two to $5 million EBITDA range of company, there tends to be not a lot of competition, which is why you're able to buy at a 4X on average EBITDA instead of a 7 to 10. That is one of the, the magical things about this asset class. It's There's not a ton of available quality information. And just by getting on the phone and doing the emails, you're finding companies that are hidden gems. And generally speaking, if it's a really competitive situation like you're describing, we're not buying that company. But it does happen. It's not always without competition. And often what's interesting is because the searcher understands that this is as much a financial decision as it is an emotional decision, is trained on how to sell themselves such that the legacy is lasting, such that the company will be put in good hands, such that what I like to say in the ultimate situation is the seller ends up selling to the searcher because it's the son or daughter they didn't have. It becomes that kind of relationship so that they feel like they're passing it on to good people and able to coach and mentor through the transition so that you create this everlasting legacy for their, all their hard work. The search fund. How do they normally go about, because these sound like more hands-on, your hands dirty type of businesses. How do they normally go about or plan to create value growth through the acquisition? Is it through technology? Is it through change in the org? When they're looking at business, what are they thinking of implementing? Yeah, that's really important, Sean. You're buying, in many cases, businesses that are growing, but not like software companies. And as I mentioned before, software companies have become more of a target. But generally speaking, these are not high flyers, not fast growing. So what you're trying to do is before you go in and make the acquisition, you are asking that question. That's a great question. 
how can we create value? How can we grow this company? How can we get it to a stage where PE wants to pay that higher multiple? And what I'm excited about coming from the venture world, coming from tech is I think today, and by the way, this there's a multi-pronged answer to this question, but I'm excited that with AI and with the other tech tools, you're basically enabling small businesses to compete with larger businesses in a way that was not possible before. And if you're a 35-year-old coming into the workforce to run this company, you're comfortable and familiar with so many of those tools already. I can't tell you, you're generally buying this from an older person who isn't tech savvy, who's not been investing in their company because they've been pulling out some money over the years. And so there's a huge opportunity to get them off fax machines and spreadsheets and really a lot in pencil and paper and that kind of thing. So that's what I'm excited about. And that's what I really look to try and add value to the people I'm working with and backing. That's number one. Number two, though, is you're also coming from a top business school and you are coming in with best management practices. In a lot of cases, these companies have been run the same way for many, many years. And you get to come in and think about org charts and appropriate positions and how to think about customer acquisition differently and just how to think about the business differently, if you will, and bring fresh thinking and energy to that. But you also want to bring the notion of it's a fragmented industry. So what happens if we can make this successful? Is there an adjacent company we can bolt on? Is there an opportunity to take that dental clinic and buy a second dental clinic or that senior care facility? Can we buy a second one? Because if we're doing it well here, we should be able to apply it here too and start to create. And that's a classic PE playbook, right? As you get bigger, that's much of what happens there. But we look forward here at this range too. And if we can do that, and, and we think about it before. And so the question I always ask someone doing an acquisition is, where do you think the upside surprise is? And maybe they'll say, oh, there's a company that is in an adjacent industry that we is looking to be acquired. Or there's a regulation coming down the road that's going to enable this. Or there's we do this in California, but we can do it in Washington too. There's a bunch of answers. But that is a super important question before the acquisition ever happens because you want, because there's going to be possible downsides. You always want to think about the possible surprise upsides and a strategy for getting there. For these searchers that put in multiple years to find a company after they acquire, a couple of questions. One, is there a certain, like in venture capital, there might be a seven year horizon for the fund where at the end of seven years, they try to harvest, get the money back to the investors. Is there a time? Time horizon and what's the compensation for these searchers? Great. Yeah. Investors' money. So, yeah. is it a percentage of the sale? Like, how does that get worked out? What's industry norms? Yeah. So, one of the beautiful alignment of interest that I talked about earlier is that a searcher gets an annual salary, not again, not like they would have gotten going into industry, but they also get equity just like in venture. But the difference here is they have three components of equity. They'll end up, if they're successful, with around 25 to 30% of equity, of ownership in the company. Part of the equity is on the acquisition. Part of the equity comes with time, just like stock options, if you will. And then part of it comes if they hit the investor hurdle rate of 25 or 30%. So talk about an alignment of interest, right? That's a very hefty hurdle rate for most outcomes. And yet that's the model here. 
And so if they do that, uh, I was actually reading the Stanford Search Fund study that I was talking about. It said that the average search fund entrepreneur has earned about six and a half million dollars for their efforts on their search fund with a successful outcome, which not bad, right? And and that's interesting to me because once you've had a successful outcome, and this is also what's happening in the space, more and more people now have been successful searchers. They then go and say, okay, I did the model. I'm now going to be an independent searcher because I have credibility. I have a story. I know how this works. And they're going to take more equity the second time because they've earned it, if you will. Or they're a successful searcher and they're going to go raise a fund to back other searchers because they know what it takes. And so we're getting more funds in the space, more dollars coming in. But that's how it works for the searcher out of the gate. And so it really is an extension of business school, if you will. The payoff is really good and it leads to what can happen happen after that. So anyway, that's the way it works for the searcher. And generally speaking, while some of us thought they were going to earn $100 million working for a startup, this is the earning money the old-fashioned way, getting in the trenches, working really hard, and growing a company. John, where do you see the best talent coming out of business school going in the future? Do you think it'll be venture? Think it'll be investment banking? Or think it search is going to take more and more? Where do you see the future for the MBA grads? Great question. Hey, listen, this is so hard that most people aren't going to do this. And that's also why it's not going to scale. There will be, because it's being taught, there will be people who want to do this. But let me give you some numbers. And I'm not, I'm a bit making this up, but I'm guessing I'm close. If you look at the number of searchers, say five or 10 years ago, coming out of schools, first of all, there weren't that many schools that presented it. There were only 25, 35 total. Okay. That's not very many. It, millions of companies, right? Now we have, I mentioned 20 plus schools teaching it. So now maybe we have a hundred searchers coming out again, compared to the opportunity set, not very many. Harvard, the numbers I believe, graduated 900 in June, MBA students, okay? I think six or seven decided to do search. Not very many. So I don't think I don't think it's going to take away. I think it's just an opportunity for a small group of people to think about how to be an entrepreneur in a different and really exciting way. And now that more schools are teaching the playbook, now that there's more podcasts on the subject like this, now there's books written on it, now there's studies, I think you'll see more people look at it. But again, it's a drop in the bucket of, of the opportunity set both for search and overall for jobs that they may want to take. And John, we're just about wrapping up on time. What are you working on these days that you'd like to share with people? Also, if people want to find out more about search funds, what are some good resources for them? Yeah. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do it? Sure. So my website is agound.fund, agate like the rock, pound like the Irish wolfhounds we used to raise when I was growing up. Agate, by the way, is the state rock of Nebraska. So agatehound.fund, I'm working on a way for people to have access to the asset class and invest in the asset class. So you can look at the website. And also I have some resources on the website and my email is on the website. And John Steinberg, feel free to reach out to me. I love talking about this. And I think you guys, your audience is going to hear a lot more about this in the next couple of years. It's super exciting. As you can tell, I can barely sit on my seat in my excitement for it. And I really just appreciate, Sean, the opportunity to talk about this. And I hope I didn't go on too long about search funds because I know 
I could talk hours about it. But again, if people want to connect, I would love to talk to them. If they want to go to the search fund conferences, you can Bing search that or Google search that. Uh, but uh, I'm here. I'm available. It's a very cool asset class, one that I hope a lot of your listeners check out. Fantastic. We're going to have those links in the show notes. And for our audience out there, if you are a searcher and you come across something or you're looking, let me know. I'm an investment banker. I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Connect with me on LinkedIn at Sean Flynn and go to the Silicon Valley podcast where we have this episode, our past episode, what we're working on in the future and and all that good stuff. And with that, John, we got to get you back on the show in the next year or so when we get some updates on everything that's happening in search. But thank you for introducing our audience to this amazing asset class and then this topic. This was a fascinating interview that I'm sure our audience is going to listen to multiple times and, and gain more and more insights every time they listen to it. So thank you. Thanks, Sean. I really appreciate it. My best. All right. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the SiliconValleyPodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.